0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm very excited today to welcome John Gertner, the author of a new book, The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation. And for all of you who are interested in innovation and how this company innovated so much, it was the birthplace of the transistor. The C programming language, the first cellular phone systems, the Unix operating system, the integrated circuit, communication satellites, the laser, the first fiber optic cable systems. This is something that you should pay attention to. There's a reason why Bell Labs was able to innovate the way that they did. John Gertner, the author of this book, is an editor at Fast Company Magazine, and he's a writer for the New York Times Magazine. The scientist behind Bell Labs' phenomenal success is portrayed in a very exciting way in this book. I really am excited to talk to John about Bell Labs, and I thank you, John, for all the work that you've done to make us more aware of how profound and big innovation really is and how we have an incredible model to look at. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome John Gertner to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I think the first thing that I'd like to talk to you about with respect to this book is how long did it take
1: you to write? I'd been thinking about it probably going back about 10 years. I actually began the writing of the book in the the spring of 2007.
0: It's a big book, but there's so many interesting facets of it. Now, I know you focused a lot on the team that was very causal in a lot of the innovation, but you also shared in the book about the fact that even though it seemed like it was a monopolistic giant, it was considered to be a living organism culturally. They had a nobody-can-be-turned-away policy if you had a question or needed help. Could you talk a little about that?
1: Sure. Uh You know, it it was a a complicated place um, where there were, there were, you know, as you say, it was a monopoly, and it was somewhat contradictory in the sense that we don't necessarily think of monopolies as positive in a positive way anymore, and for good reason. I think they they limit consumers' choices, they can slow the rate of innovation, they can make things very expensive, but being attached to the Phone company, the phone monopoly, um, as Bell Labs was, as the research and development arm of the phone company, um, allowed it to kind of create these string of innovations that were, in many ways, very very good for the country. Um, now, how did it how did it do those? Well, it had a lot of resources. You know, it was um, again being attached to a monopoly allowed it to have. Um, Uh, large sums of money to spend on people and on materials and on resources, Uh, it could also think really long-term towards not just the next quarterly report or annual uh, report, but to plan for the future of communications 5 or 10 or even 20 years in advance. And that allowed it a certain kind of freedom, at least for some members of Bell Labs who worked in the research department, to really think long-term. But There was a kind of way of managing this group. Um, And and again, not everybody was in one big mass of people. There were not only departments of different disciplines, but there was a research department, which was really about 10 to 15% of the people who worked at Bell Labs. And these were PhDs mostly, uh, scientists and mathematicians, uh, physicists, chemists, metallurgists, Uh, and the like, and they were pursuing new knowledge, or they were thinking, as I said, far ahead to the future of communications. But a lot of people at Bell Labs worked in the development side of things, where they thought about the phone system, and this was an era where they didn't really use the word network so much as they used system. And these were largely engineers uh, and technicians who were thinking about real-day, everyday problems in the phone system, how to um, um, plan ahead or implement new technologies to make what they thought was, and I think they were right, the, the best communication system in the world. And it was a very effective combination in the sense that there was, by being attached to uh, a real company with a lot of problems, technical problems, that they were solving every day, you know, the researchers could really... Um, Think practically at the same time as they would think idealistically, and and it was, as I said, a fertile combination that led to this series of breakthroughs. That I don't really know if there's any parallel to that in modern history. And you know, this was, as I say in the book, you know, it was really a factory of ideas. It really just kept churning out things in in response to its uh, to its uh, obligation as part as part of the um, part of the phone monopoly.
0: I wanted to cut right away to Mervyn Kelly, because it is understood that Mervyn Kelly hired brilliant physicists and engineers like William Shockley and Walter Brittain and Jim Fisk and Charles Townes, who basically were thought of as setting the agenda for future famous discoveries. Do you agree with that?
1: I, I think I would, Mervyn Kelly, uh, if it's okay, if I talk a little bit about please. him, please. He came from a a poor family in rural Missouri, um, which I think was in many ways indicative of a lot of these people who came to Bell Labs, even up until the war, they weren't really from elite families. They were really, uh, as I say in the book, uh, from intersections of nowhere and nowhere in small towns. um, A lot of them were really good with farm machinery, where they could take cars apart and put them back together, Uh, and Kelly um, worked in his father's hardware store, um, really didn't... Nobody in his town went to college, but he won a scholarship to the University of Missouri at Rolla, And then from there, he discovered physics and went to the University of Chicago and eventually made his way over to Western Electric, which is the manufacturing company of the phone monopoly, and made his way to Bell Labs in 1925 and rose up through the ranks to become the head of research and eventually the president. And he was a formidable presence. He was an incredibly energetic person, um, brusque in many ways. Um, People were a little bit scared of him. But he he was also somewhat of a contradiction that as much of a rush as he would be in, uh, he had a deep appreciation for allowing um, his researchers to have time and uh, freedom, to some extent, to pursue deeper knowledge. He had a best friend at Bell Labs who influenced him deeply in his early days, um, a guy named Clinton Davison, who also won a Nobel Prize, actually. But Davison was somebody at Bell Labs who, in the beginning of Labs's Labs' um, um, history, was somebody who wasn't really interested in solving practical problems. He was really searching for new knowledge. And it made a deep impression on Kelly because Kelly would watch as people uh, at the, at Bell Labs, colleagues of his, who had a problem no one else could answer would go to his friend Davison, and Davison was the only one who could answer it. And what that did was not only could Davison answer their problems, but by imparting knowledge, not just a kind of solution, oh, you should you know fix your device by doing X or Y or Z, but by explaining to them what was going on in the nature of the materials they were using or how they could conceptually think about what they were building um, allowed the workers and his colleagues at Bell labs to make improvements on devices that were just orders of magnitude better than they could do just by simple tinkering, for instance. And years later, when Kelly ran the research department, Davison served as a kind of model for this person, that, that it was very important, Kelly, to have these people who were just could impart new knowledge and deeper knowledge. So that was one aspect of, of Kelly, Kelly's influence, but there were many others. And, um, you know, he, he, he was um, very good at and, and, and felt it was very important to not only um, create these sort of leaders or exemplars um, who would help um, their colleagues, but also to create the environment um, architecturally, for instance. Uh, the building, the main building at Bell Labs and Murray Hill, uh, Kelly had a deep influence over how it was laid out. And he believed that people of all different disciplines should work together in very close proximity. He thought um, phone calls alone were enough, which is ironic because they worked for the phone company, but he thought you had to exchange ideas in person. And he also thought that, uh, which might sound obvious now, but at the time was somewhat radical, that putting people in contact, not just like-minded people, not just say, physicists clumped together, but the interface of different disciplines, that chemists and physicists and engineers all together, that new ideas came out of a kind of tension uh, of an exchange between those groups, and also between, say, researchers and developers, between people thinking longer term or deeper and people thinking more practically. So, Uh, He was ahead of his time in so many ways, and he was obviously a a brilliant and far-thinking manager, Um, and his influence really carried over the labs from the 1930s really until it was broken up by the phone company in the early 1980s, broken up by the federal government, excuse me, in the early 1980s.
0: He said so many interesting things that you quoted in your book. He says, A new device or invention stimulates and frequently demands other new devices and inventions for its proper use. Or another way to put it is, innovation created other problems that needed solutions. So he really got it. The minute you solve something or invent something, you need to invent a few other things to allow for that thing to come in.
1: Yeah, he he, he did. Um, I, I was repeatedly, I mean, not just with Mervyn Kelly, but there are other people in the book who form the core uh, story that I'm telling, and not just Mervyn Kelly. Sure. but there's, you know, you, we sort of think of ourselves as very smart and accomplished and very far, far-sighted today. But it's quite surprising to go back in time and to uh, see how far-thinking uh, and how deep these people thought. And uh, it's really quite, you know. You know, it makes quite an impression to think, uh, you know, way back then they were, they they had insights that uh, we, we tend to think are new.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought it was also really impressive when you really think about what it took to create Bell Labs and how many problems needed to get solved that were solved. The Navy called upon them for radar, how they dealt with competition and teams and patents and the atmosphere. And this thing about solving problems versus merely selling inventions, I thought was interesting too.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and that dates back really to the to those early days of um, of the phone company, even maybe before Bell Labs. I mean, you know, they had to invent everything, like ringers and dial tones and busy signals. And then uh, later on, um, as things you know kept growing, they were they were running this communication system. That was ever expanding, so there were always, you know, problems <clears throat> that they were going to solve. And uh, as, as you mentioned before, uh, the solution to one problem was n- was not the end of things. <laughs> Sometimes it was just the beginning of things. And uh, with with some of the innovations I talk about in the book, for instance, the transistor, um, it was uh, the transistor, for instance, was a solution to the problem of the vacuum tube, which was this wonderful electronic device that allowed for the amplification of phone signals and allowed for really cross-country communication, but the transistor itself created a number of problems. It, even after its invention, it was very hard to um, develop and to manufacture and then to manufacture in great quantities, and then... It very expensive, and so, you know, these, these kinds of things, and, and then how do you create devices that you could use a transistor appropriately, and it, it really um, um, is, is, is fascinating that this whole, I guess you could say, ecosystem had to evolve in turn with every new dramatic invention that came out of Bell Labs.
0: What did you think about Dr. Claude Shannon?
1: I mean, Shannon's another of the main characters in my book, um, which...
0: I wanted you to talk about him a little bit.
1: Yeah, the the book focuses on on really five or six people. Mervyn Kelly was one of the older of the group, but uh, Claude Shannon was a mathematician. Claude Shannon grew up in Michigan and uh, made his way for a Ph.D. um, at MIT uh, in um, really mathematics and engineering. And Shannon was, I guess, you know, different people at Bell Labs had not only different certainly different personalities and different kinds of expertise, but almost different, um, um, you know, um, different ways of, of, of creating, um, something original and, and groundbreaking. And Shannon was unusual in some ways in that he was very much a loner. He pursued things by himself and Labs was a very collaborative place. And not only that, but the mathematics department where Shannon worked was extremely collaborative. In fact, um, your bosses there wanted you to collaborate. You were um, encouraged to write papers together rather than by yourself. But Shannon was a lone thinker. Um, he was not unfriendly, and in fact, he was humble. Um, he was a, a kindly person, but uh, he worked alone. And in the 30s, when Shannon was at MIT, he wrote what became known as the most influential master's thesis in history, where he sort of uh, said that there's this way of planning computer um, Uh, logic where we can think of it in terms of uh, ones and zeros, what he called, you know, what was called Boolean algebra to to design computer circuits. Uh, By the time he got to Bell Labs in the 40s, he began working on cryptography and made some incredible contributions there. But really the great achievement of his life and his life at Bell Labs was something that came out in 1948. It was called information theory. Uh, Originally, it was called the theory of communications, but eventually became information theory. And it was really this long mathematical treatise on why, on digital communications, on how all information (coughs) could follow these same unifying principles could be thought about digitally, um, ones and zeros, for instance. And it also explained how you could send any kind of message with perfection from place to place. And the question I guess. Why does that matter? Well, he, he sort of gave a um, framework for sending messages that still is valuable and crucial today. Um, and he also explained something which we've come to be known as error correcting codes of how you could send a message with really perfection by in, by including other kinds of information with it. And it allowed has allowed for for instance, when you scratch a CD or DVD, why it still works fine, or how you can send deep space communications, um, or why um, why you know communications uh, can be um, 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 can, can not be so susceptible to noise or interference, and it goes back to the work Shannon did way back when at Bell Labs. Uh, so he was really just an absolute genius in the in the real sense of the word.
0: So many exciting things got created there invented there but i want to talk a little bit about the first transatlantic phone cable system oh my god i mean the work on that and what it took to bring it to fruition talk about it they invented the tat-1 and they had a deal with the british post office to do it for undersea communications talk about it
1: i'm really glad you <laughs> I'm glad you asked me about that. It's funny because nobody has asked me about that in all all this time in the book. And it was it was dramatic. Um, the the Bell Labs had been working on undersea cables for for years. It's harder to send. It's hard to create a, a, a cable that sends um, phone signals underwater. Um, one reason, especially underwater for vast distances, and uh, in the Early, the late 1800s um, and the, the early 1900s, they began to send telegraph messages through undersea cables from the United States to Europe and to connect the, con- the continents. But sending a phone message is much more complicated than sending a telegraph dot dash sort of signal. Um, and the signal kind of dies out after um, you know, tens of miles, certainly after hundreds of miles. So you need really these vacuum tubes or repeater bulbs in, that would amplify the signal every 50 or 70 miles in this phone cable. Well, how do you do that underwater for 2,000 miles? And um, for years, they had been planning this at Bell Labs, going back to the 1930s, but it hadn't been actually... Gotten a green light until the 1950s, under again Mervyn Kelly and a Bell Labs president named Oliver Buckley, and they. I one of the most interesting things about the cable um, was it, it did have these vacuum tubes every 50 or 70 miles. I'm forgetting precisely how how often the the signal was repeated, but uh, it was an enormous undertaking taken um, done in conjunction with the British Post Office. And uh, instead of using transistors, which were a replacement for the vacuum tube, um, Kelly insisted that they only use technology that they knew could be depended upon to function for 20 years.
0: I thought that was so smart. What an intention! Isn't that neat?
1: You had to make <laughs> um, the economics of the of the of the cable had to make sense. That once this cable was down there. Two miles deep, for instance, and it broke or it stopped working. And a transistor was a very new, possibly unreliable technology. Um, what would you do? Well, God, it would be a nightmare. You'd have to have special ships, you know, come down. And they did have these. They would kind of claw up the cable and pull it up, <laughs> you'd fix it, and you'd look. What for a job! <laughs> so. Um, what they did is they created this great innovation, the transatlantic cable, using in some ways the least innovative, or at least the least contemporary components. And um, it, there were actually two cables that were laid down in the same time. Um, one would take calls to Europe, and one would take go on the return um, cycle back. And uh, they were opened in 1956. And they really, you know, they could only in the, in the beginning handle, you know, 30 or 40 conversations at a time. But they were a vast improvement over what existed up until that time, which, was, which would, would be where you would broadcast a connection from the United States to Europe by phone uh, using radio signals. And uh, that could be very unreliable based on atmospheric interference, So uh, what you had with the transatlantic cable was a very reliable telephone connection that obviously was much richer in the way you could talk as opposed to telephone, uh, as opposed to telegraph signals, which was the case before
0: then. I try to look for themes when I read. One of the other interesting things was that telephone technology had been considered having a lot in common with new weapon systems which allowed for these remote radar installations, work with the Navy, work with NSA, work with the Atomic Energy Commission, and work with Sandia. Would you like to talk about any of this part?
1: Yeah, I mean, the military um, component of Bell Labs was very significant. It was about 20% of their work after World War II. And uh, it was... um, I, it was deemed vital, as the the, the the leaders of Bell Labs saw it in that day and age. Um, vital for for different reasons. Vital in that the country, as they saw it, needed their expertise. I think you know at the time that um, that, that it's important, as I say in the book, to note that uh, inform, the information age was becoming pretty much intertwined with the atomic age. That. The kind of communications technologies that were coming out of Bell Labs were essential in guiding missiles, for instance, or in detecting attacks. And Kelly um, believed it was crucial to work with the military. There was also another motive that Bell Labs and the phone company was always worried about its monopoly status, and they feel felt that to some extent they lived in jeopardy of that monopoly being taken away. And as the executives at Bell Labs saw it, that by becoming indispensable to the business of government, uh, military—it was not a cynical um, sort of endeavor, but they saw it as a sort of uh, sensible and political endeavor, that becoming involved with Sandia Labs, for instance— or becoming involved with um, the, you know, the, the distant early warning uh, system, for instance, and lending their expertise to that, they were not only doing the country service, they were also, in turn, uh, helping to some extent um, 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 cement Bell Labs' importance um, and and the, the the Bell Systems integrated monopolies' importance to uh, the United States government as well.
0: Yeah, it sounds like they had a profound contribution to many of these agencies and their ability to evolve and to function. I wanted to talk about the solar cell because what was interesting about this, aside from what it is, is that it was said to have developed out of a culture of cooperation. On page 171 of your book, says what was striking but almost always overlooked about its invention was that three inventors of the device were working in different buildings. The solar cell just sort of happened. It was not team research in the traditional sense, but it was made possible because the lab's policy did not require us to get permission of our bosses to cooperate. At the laboratories, one could go directly to the person who could help. I think it's interesting that you tie that together. because I think that's important for people that are about innovating and as an outgrowth of cooperation. I just wondered if you wanted to talk more about it.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, that, that there were different kinds of ways to innovate at Bell Labs. Um, I've been asked, you know, what was their formula? And I don't know if it was a formula as much as it was a structure, you know, that, that, that sometimes, um, innovations like the transistor came out of, um, mid-sized teams that were put together um, by, in that case, Mervyn Kelly, that were put together with a particular goal in mind. But sometimes it was more like Silicon Solar Cell, which you just described, which just almost was serendipitous, that it depended on these human connections between the people there, that there were sort of this web of friendships between uh, one of the guys, Gerald Pearson, who was a physicist and somebody he knew from college, uh, who was trying to solve Daryl Chapin? Who was trying to solve a particular problem? And it arose out of that. Uh, and again, as as you mentioned, as I mentioned in the book too, that they didn't need permission; they could just kind of do it. <laughs> um, so, you know, the the similarities I think are that that these were people confronted with uh, a, smart people uh, working in close proximity confronted with uh, the right problem at the right time, but that there are different ways to make something revolutionary.
0: That piece that I read, I quoted from your book, I read up through part one, which is almost 200 pages, and then there's a whole part two, but... At this point, what was your take on how deep the competitiveness was? In part one, it's obvious that there were players that were very competitive. They still cooperated. They still worked on things separately and together, but there was competition.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially in the in the transistor group, uh, these this group of scientists, big time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there was and um William Shockley who was in charge of the transistor group. Uh was a co-leader of the group. Uh was very competitive and two people under Shockley, uh John Bardeen and Walter Bratton, were the actual first inventors inventors of what would be the first transistor. And um Shockley had a very strong reaction to that. Um he was happy at first, but he was um quite envious and his Competitive nature uh, came out. Um, this was problematic, at it allows, because you weren't supposed to compete with people who worked under you. Uh, if you were a leader, you shared credit. You gave them ideas. You managed with a very light hand. Um, but not in in this case. That was not the case. And uh, Bardeen and Bratton's invention of what was called the point contact transistor led Shockley over the next few months to create... An even better transistor that was called the junction transistor. Um, Now you could say that that's just a natural reaction to 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 um, to kind of you know it's a a matter of human nature, and 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 I think that's a that's a fair statement. But at the same time, his um, the way he went about it created a sort of uh, well created a a wonderful new technology, um, but it also created this rift at Bell Labs. And this very cohesive group, this transistor group that had been working diligently on uh, these revolutionary ideas, really fell apart soon after that. So, um, I think I think Shockley is a, a fascinating person. Um, and and again, in the book, there's a lot on personalities because it's not just technologies and knowledge that 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 make innovation happen. It's people, really, a lot of times, and it's this interplay between different kinds of people. And uh, you know, Shockley is a, it was a deeply complicated person, uh, and he had a very you know, strong influence, and, uh, and people had a very strong reaction to him, too. And it, after that happened, um, it became pretty clear to the managers at Bell Labs that as, as you know, brilliant as Shockley was, he was not a good manager of people. And in many ways, after that, his ascent up the ranks at Bell Labs sort of stopped, and he became frustrated. And his frustration eventually led him to leave Bell Labs in the mid-1950s and to go to California. And, And this is another chapter in the Shockley story, because Shockley was really the first guy to start, to bring the Silicon to Silicon Valley. He started the first transistor company in Palo Alto. And, um, he, um, hired a bunch of brilliant people there too. And, uh, eventually his man- management, uh, shortcomings came out again. And the people <laughs> who were working for him stormed off and formed another company. And they eventually, the guys who he originally hired eventually went on to form the Intel Corporation. So he was a great, great at, great at picking talent, great at identifying, uh, brilliant people great himself too with science and physics but but uh but you know obviously very very deficient in um managing and handling people
0: well maybe he just should have had a business card that said casting <laughs> <laughs> he could have made big money in the entertainment industry then cuz it's timing and script but it's also about casting isn't it
1: yeah yeah no definitely <laughs> he was um and he was he was brilliant at that he he um actually uh went so far as to 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 test people who were interested in possibly working for him and having taking psychological tests and um became deeply interested in in how intelligence links to creativity uh this eventually led him to yet another chapter in his life a a much darker one where he became very interested in how race and intelligence um are related and um, you know really led led him down this path towards uh, eugenics and and really you know in some ways Shockley died in disgrace uh, um, and and the book goes into that as well but uh, really for 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 uh, for about ten years from, from the late 40s from the mid 40s to the to the to the mid 50s or late 50s he was really one of the the great the world's you know most accomplished and uh, revered scientists.
0: Interesting. It's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you know what I mean. I thought it was also interesting that innovation kind of was a term that came out of England.
1: Yeah, you know, it it dates in in trying to um trying to understand uh, how to explain how to how to explain or talk about innovation at Bell Labs. I did find myself feeling. Very strongly that I had to define it in a very clear way. I mean, we use the word pretty casually now. I think right, and we sort of use it, which is okay. I I, I don't I don't mean to, to to make a value judgment on that, but I think in some ways it's hard to to write about something that's so vague. Uh, but it turns out at Bell Labs they had a very specific definition of innovation uh, that it was it was not an invention, it was not a breakthrough, it was something that was carried through from a breakthrough stage, uh, development stage. It was. To a manufacturing stage, it was this whole process of bringing a new idea to the market, and it took many different people to do it and many different kinds of skills. Um, and if you go back actually in time to reading a lot of the literature, scientific literature, engineering literature in the in the um, mid twentieth century, the word innovation really doesn't start get you doesn't isn't used that much in technology circles until the nineteen fifties. I think Bell Labs, really, I didn't start to see it until 1958 in the documents I was digging through. Uh, if you go back even farther to where this word came from, it dates back to, to 16th century, uh, to England, and it described, it always sort of described similar things. It described a new idea, uh, usually relating to philosophy or religion. Um, But again, it it took took many centuries, really, to where it became much more um, uh, focused on describing technology. And uh, and even even in the 60s, it was used sparingly, and I think it's it's a much more modern sort of term that we use.
0: I thought it was interesting that you wrote almost by definition, a single person or even a single group could not alone create an innovation. The task was too variegated and involved. Kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, and and again that, that, that probably um that really relates back to that sort of definition of of how they thought of innovation. There was a guy who I talk about in my book named Jack Morton who worked uh on the development of the transistor and was a very deep thinker about what innovation was at a time when really a lot of people weren't thinking about this kind of stuff, uh, and was really sort of struggling to understand, you know, what it meant. Uh, you know again again we we think we're really smart now, but these guys really really were ahead of their time in so many ways.
0: Talk a little bit, if you would, about the distinction that's made between solving problems versus merely selling inventions. I think that
1: innovators, uh, whatever kind of innovation they're working on, whether it's in Silicon Valley working on computer software or 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 back at Bell Labs, where they were you know creating transistors and lasers. Uh, I, I think in in many ways they're, they're, they all think they're solving problems, and I, I think they are. Um, it depends maybe what kind of problem you're solving. And I, I think that uh, if we just look at cell phones, for instance, um, I think it, in Silicon Valley they use the word iterate a lot right now, um, which means a kind of newer version of a sort of
0: an iteration of something? An iteration,
1: right. Okay, like, like
0: iPhone 5.
1: <laughs> yes, right. Well, well, the iteration, well, the iPhone 5, might, that might be a big jump when it comes out. We, we,
0: All right, excuse me to the iPhone 5, but you know what I mean.
1: Yes, right, so the 4 and the 4S, you know. So there you go. The 4S, so they iterated again. You know, they created a, a sort of incremental um, innovation, I guess you could say. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, that that the, are, they, are they selling... Invention, or well, I, I think, I, I think at Bell Labs they weren't selling stuff. You know, in that in in that regard, that this was a place where you couldn't go to the store and buy Bell Labs technology. It was stuff. It was it was innovations that were inside of other electronic devices. So uh, the market was not um, was not consumers. It wasn't like we think of today where. Oh, you know, um, Apple has a new iPhone, for instance, or, or a new um, iPad out. It was it was a very different kind of model. But you know, I, I don't I don't um, denigrate in any way what what the Silicon Valley companies are are doing. Um, and I'm a am sitting here in front of a a, a wonderful MacBook Pro, and uh, <laughs> a, a great BlackBerry right here too. You know, so it's it's um it's innovation too. Uh, it, it's different, it's it's valuable. Um, one question I think I wrestle with and I think is worth maybe a larger dialogue is, you know, whether we're investing in the kind of research, basic research, scientific research that creates sort of breakthroughs and maybe not just these more incremental sort of changes. And, uh, you know, because I think the kinds of stuff that Bell Labs was in, investing in uh, really yielded these huge jumps that created platforms for new industries and millions of jobs and uh you know that's that's still happening universities you know do wonderful things in research and our federal government re- you know does invest in research and energy research and the like but you know the, the question of you know are we doing enough are we doing it the right way is a is a very complex question um, but it's something that maybe deserves a bit more um, consideration that, than we give it.
0: You are an editor for Fast Company. Would you like to talk a little bit about what you do there? What does an editor of Fast Company do?
1: <laughs> Fast Company is a business magazine. We're out of New York City. We have a circulation of about 750,000. Uh, so we're, we're all over the country. Uh, I edit features there. Um, so I work with writers writing stories about you know, oftentimes business or technology. I also write myself. Um, in fact, in the new issue, which is on the newsstand now, it has Mark Zuckerberg on the cover of Facebook.
0: I saw it. <laughs>
1: yeah. I I wrote a, a long article on Tesla Motors, which is an electric car company um, out of Palo Alto. And it's um, a really fascinating company, uh, actually a company that's doing something incredibly risky and in trying to 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 change the model, you know, to to sort of compete with Detroit by creating this breakthrough electric car.
0: Very Not, exciting.
1: A lot of people know that that Tesla Roadster, but you know they're coming out with this new um, family car. I guess you know a very high high end family car, a Model S they call it. But um, it's a it's a it's a fascinating company. So I spent a, a few weeks out there and um, and wrote about in a, a long feature for Fast Company that should be out right now.
0: What a great magazine. And your work at the New York Times, talk a little bit about that, the New
1: York Times magazine. Yeah, for, from about 2004 on, I, the, I have been a feature writer for the New York Times magazine. Um, I don't have time so much to write for the magazine now as an editor at Fast Company, but uh, I do write for the magazine. Um, I do write for the New York Times um, uh, whenever I can. I wrote a, a long piece actually about Bell Labs uh, for their Sunday review section, Few weeks back. It's called, it was called True Innovation, and it looked at some of the ideas that I developed much further in the book, and uh, sometimes also I contribute to the New York Times book review uh, on Sundays as well.
0: The Institute of Creative Technology that Kelly was talking about at Bell Labs, he says, always required a stable supply of money. Do you think that's still true today?
1: I think that's right uh, in the sense that you can... You can or at least from every technology or scientific researcher I talk to, there's this danger of a boom and bust cycle that having money to do research and then not having it a year or two after can be problematic, and it makes it hard to think long-term, I think, or to plan long-term. You can't plan a scientific breakthrough. It would be great if you could, but these things don't happen on a schedule. Um, So sometimes they require a long time frame, they require that, that steady or stable stream of dollars, um, which doesn't mean that at Bell Labs they would let people pursue dead ends for years and years on end. They looked for progress or insights or some kind of benchmarks and achievements. But at the same time, I think they understood that um, there was no schedule for, for genius, as they called it at the time.
0: Is there anything else that you would like to share with us today in closing the segment?
1: I think one thing that I may have touched on before, but that I I've been trying to hopefully get across too, is that you know, I think the book is about innovation certainly, and it's about the specific innovations that came out of Bell Labs at this one one you know sort of amazing place at this one point in time, but that it is a story of people, and and that um, in focusing on this sort of remarkable small group of people that I discuss in the book, um, it tells you know a very hopefully engaging story of their lives and how uh, innovation is a real human process and not just a technological process.
0: I really want to thank you for your many years of work on the Idea Factory, Bell Labs, and the Great Age of American Innovation. John Gertner, thank you so much for being with us. Everybody go out and buy the Idea Factory, Bell Labs, and the Great Age of American Innovation. And John, thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you, Kim. It's
0: great.